As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, fair warning, folks, if I if I sound like I speak with the voice and mind of uh, some kind of decrepit <laughs> bog monster today, it is uh, it is because I'm on the wind from a from a bad cold. So uh, so apologies on whatever's happening in your ears right now. But uh, but but here I am on mic. Well, sometimes bog monsters are quite wise. So, you know, it, it depends on the story you're looking at. I hope to bring a real Meg Mucklebones energy to, <laughs> yeah. to today's episode. So you'll have to tell me how I do. But yeah, yo, what are we talking about today, Rob? Well, we're going to be talking about a little something called the minimal group paradigm, which sounds, uh, I know if you're not familiar with it, sounds a bit a bit stuffy, uh, perhaps. Uh, perhaps sounds a little bit clinical. Uh, but I think it's, it's a very fascinating little topic. Uh, shouldn't make for a nice one-part uh, episode here. Uh, because it attempts to come down to some of the like the major uh, concerns regarding human civilization and uh, human interactions, uh, basically coming down to the question of like just how divisive are human beings, and how little does it take for us to split into factions over something or next to nothing even. And I, I think for many of us, the answer seems to be that we're you know we're very uh, divisive. And that it you know, doesn't take much at all for us to split off into factions. And I think this, this has been played to great effect in literature and cinema, especially uh, comedically. And two examples always come to my mind. So one of them, uh, Joe, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. I don't know if we've talked about this before. But um, in the 1953 story from Dr. Seuss, The Sneetches. Is this the, uh, is this the butter on the bread one? No, no, no. You're thinking of the Butter Battle book, which does get into a similar situation. Uh, that's a... Uh, where you have two different groups and one side thinks you should do the, the, the butter side down, the other says butter side up, and uh, they get into this big Cold War s- stalemate. This is an arms race, an escalation of, uh, of their weaponry based on the, uh, the, the butter ideology difference. 
Yeah, so that, that's a good one to bring up too. The Sneeches concerns this population of avian creatures that uh, in, in their entire social hierarchy is based on which ones have a star on their bellies and which ones don't have a star on their bellies. And the star-bellied Sneeches are the ones that live at the top and uh, the rest live at the bottom. But then a con artist moves into town with a star-on machine and then later a star-off machine to capitalize on their divisiveness uh, though at the end of that, the Sneeches move beyond all of this and they unite as a single people. So it's, you know, kind of a nice message. Oh, that's that's very nice. That's a much happier ending than the Butter Battle book, which, uh, as I recall, it ends with basically both sides on a hair trigger with their ultimate weaponry. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a real clincher, that one. But uh, another example that comes to mind, I know you're familiar with this one, is, of course, Monty Python's Life of Brian. Mm. Uh, there's a memorable scene in which the anti-Roman resistance is split, uh, more than split, between the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea and various other fragments of their independence group. One of the characters in the Judean People's Front proudly proclaims that the only people they hate more than the Romans is the People's Front of Judea. I think this is meant to play on a concept that was called the narcissism of small differences by Sigmund Freud. Uh, mm. I don't know if Freud was the first person ever to observe this, but uh, I think that's where the phrase comes from is his writings about the idea that uh, it's actually the, like the most bitter, hateful, divisive struggles in the world tend to be between people who actually share a lot of things in common but have some uh, difference that really appears minor to people looking in from the outside. Mm -hmm. Now, I think a lot of you out there, you may be able to think of examples from other works of fiction or, or certainly from real life. Many of the various serious things we divide ourselves over um, or, you know, some of the equally seemingly silly, at least from the outside things that we that we were very divisive over. And to your point, sometimes they're within like subgroups and fandoms even. All manner of brand and sports team loyalty uh, can lead to division that doesn't necessarily make much sense on closer inspection. Uh, perhaps you prefer Puma shoes and this other person prefers Adidas. How could the two of you ever see eye to eye? And th this specific example ties into, uh, I think, what is a great example of division in human beings and human groups. One I originally saw pointed out uh, by, and it's, though it's been well documented for a while, uh, by Jay Van Bavel and Dominique Packer in a TED-Ed video. This is like an animated um, educational uh, short that TED-Ed puts on wonderful shorts. Uh, it's regular viewing in my uh, household uh, with my family. But uh, the title of this one is The Sibling Rivalry That Divided a Town. Uh, so I thought I'd cover the basics of this sibling rivalry. All right. So uh, are you familiar with this story, Joe? I'm not. Well, it all starts in around 1919. That's when these two brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dassler, found a shoe company called Gebruder Dassler uh, Shoe Fabric, or Geta, in their hometown of Herzogenrock in Bavaria. Turns out they were very successful. These shoes uh, really took off. Uh, you even had a situation where in the 1936 Olympics, American runner Jesse Owens apparently was wearing some of these shoes. But then uh, World War II breaks out. This disrupts everything, to say the least. Uh, Rudolph is drafted into the German army. The factory is transformed into a weapons factory. And, uh, and again, everything is just super disrupted until after the war, the brothers reunite. Their work continues. That is until 1948, when they split over some personal issues. And I think there are a few different uh, analyses of, of what those personal issues might have been. But the results are, are the same anyway. Any you cut it. 
the company is split in two. That means material, workforce, uh, and so forth. Rudolph founds Ruda, which becomes Puma, and Adolf starts Adidas. Now, that's, that's not that crazy, right? It's just one shoe company splitting into two shoe companies. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, according to Jay Van Babel and Dominic Packer in that uh, TED-Ed video, is that the, the brothers' feud and business division ultimately divides the entire town. Quote, residents became fiercely loyal to one brand of shoe. Local businesses chose sides, and marriage across lines was discouraged. Herzogogonok eventually became known as the town of Bent Necks because its residents looked down to ensure they were interacting with members of their group. Oh, look down at the shoes. That one took me a yes. second. Yeah. So I, I think it's a great example, not because, not only because it's, you know, kind of uh, has some sort of comical elements to it, kind of like belly stars, but also we do see the, these various elements to the division, the personal, the business, the social, and the, the schism is, is quite real. Mm-hmm. And it is funny to think how, how split people can be about brands. I mean, sometimes I think it's, it's meant jokingly. You see a lot of joking uh, comments uh, today even about things like Coke versus Pepsi or Twizzlers versus Red Vines or something. And then also things that are not even brand-oriented like overhanded versus underhanded toilet paper rolls. I recall divisions of this type were big on like early Facebook, like mid-2000s Facebook where people would make all these joke groups and it would be like, you know, for for people who like Red Vines because Twizzlers are for cowards. <laughs> I mean, it's still, I think, very prominent in, like, meme-making. You know, people like to get in on this sort of thing. I don't know. Mm. Maybe, especially when it's meant jokingly, it's kind of like low-stakes things to sort of mock, uh, disagree about. I'm not sure. But but then at what point does does uh, does just sort of trolling and mock fun, at what point does that then become, like, an actual entrenched belief or opinion? Oh, I think rather quickly, actually. <laughs> <laughs> So in this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we're going to look at a, at a social psychology concept that ties into to all of this, the minimal group paradigm, a method for sussing out uh, what might be the absolute minimal conditions for discrimination to take place between two groups. Will their findings be Twizzlers versus Red Pines? Is that the minimal thing? Uh, I don't know. You'll just have to find out. All right. So where does this minimal group paradigm come from? All right. So... Uh, one of the sources that I was looking at specifically in order to, to understand the minimal group paradigm and its history was The Origins of the Minimal Group Paradigm by Rupert Brown of the University of Sussex, 2020, published by the American Psychological Association. Brown points out that the, the, the basis of prejudice and intergroup discrimination has, of course, been a human concern for a long time and certainly was a longtime concern of uh, you know, people in psychology. But the MGP, or the minimal group paradigm as we know it, generally is attributed to Polish social scientist Henri Tashfell, who lived 1919 through 1982, uh, and, and also a British social psychologist Michael Billig, who worked with him, who was born in 1947. Typically, I see a lot of references to work they did in, in the early 70s. Uh, one of the main citations is uh, Henri Tashfell, Michael Billig, Robert Bundy, and Claude Flament. And the title is Social Categorization and Intergroup Behavior, published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, 1971, if you want to go back to the source. Now, uh, Tashfell, it's, it's worth noting, was a survivor of the Holocaust. And uh, this is important to keep in mind because much of his work does ponder the question of what drives groups of people to take up extreme prejudice views. 
Um, does the transference rely on extreme personality types or is it something more mundane? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in the early 1970s, um, Toshfell et al. Uh, conducted a series of experiments on MGP studies that would end up having an enormous impact on the field of social psychology. Uh, more on this in a second, but I also want to point out that Brown stresses that there is also a pre-Tashfell origin in the work of Dutch social psychologist Jaap Rabi in 1964. So Rabi suspected that common fate was the essential component for a group to hold together and for intergroup discrimination to occur. Common fate is a gestalt uh, psychology concept that um, says that objects functioning or moving in the same direction appear to belong together. Kind of like we're off to see the wizard, right? I mean, you're going to see the wizard. Well, I'm going to see the, see the wizard or I'm going down this road. Well, I guess we're, we're a group. Okay. So under this view, the thing that would make you prefer and show favoritism to members of your in-group is a basic belief that the same kind of thing is going to happen to all the members of this group. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can probably, you know, cut it a few different ways. Like, But yeah, it's like there's something about your your sort of common direction, common fate, if you want to put it uh, that way, that it sort of binds you together. Now, uh, Robbie's experiments involve classifying subjects into groups to explore intergroup discrimination, but he ultimately concluded that mere classification was not enough to elicit in-group favoritism. Uh, so, um, again, worth, worth noting that he was looking at some of, the, uh, some of the, the, the same stuff that would become important to the mental group paradigm uh, and kind of lays some of the, the, the groundwork for it even, uh, but his findings uh, were different. Now, th- this raises a question that Brown explores. Uh, why was Robbie overlooked and why is he still sort of overlooked in some of the, uh, the documentation surrounding MGP? And Brown breaks it uh, down and um, attributes it to three reasons. So first, Toshville's findings were, were counterintuitive and therefore mo- more newsworthy. That's one of the big things about MGP is that, uh, you know, a lot of people going into it, you don't expect to see the results you see. You don't expect to see this thing that seems to explain a lot of the division that goes on in groups and, uh, and the discrimination that occurs between groups uh, uh, just based on, as we'll get into, like just sort of random grouping of people. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense to assume that if people are showing in-group favoritism, uh, it would be because, I don't know, they assume that uh, all of the members of the group are sharing a common fate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is Tashfell's MGP work helped inspire uh, and laid the groundwork for social identity theory, uh, which became huge, so that that in turn elevated his work with MGP. And in fact, um, the social identity theory was formulated by, um, by Toshfell and John Turner, who lived 1947 through 2011 in the 1970s and the 1980s. And then the third factor that Brown points out is the personality differences between the two men. So Toshfell has been characterized as, as more of a, a go-getter, essentially, someone who really you know, t- t- took full um, uh, advantage of any opportunity to you know, sort of uh, uh, explore his ideas and get his, uh, his ideas out there, whereas uh, Robbie was more unassuming. Uh, so some combination of these three factors, according to Brown. So Toshfell was quite aware of these studies, but suspected that the opposite was true and was already experimenting with the social comparison theory. So fast forward to the 1970s and the first MGP experiments. Um, I, I'm not going to bust uh, these experiments out blow by blow necessarily, but, but certainly hitting the, the really important parts, uh, the basics of the MGP experiments. 
So the okay. first part is you have subjects carry out a task. And these t- the task is often described as something like estimating the number of dots on an image or answering an opinion question about a work of abstract art. All right. Next, presumably based on these results, subjects are placed into groups. But known only to the researchers, not to the subjects, is the fact that the group assignment is actually random. Okay, so for example, if the question you were given had to do with like estimating the number of dots, you might Mm -hmm. uh, break people into groups, say, uh, and tell them that, okay, group A is the people who overestimated the number of dots in the image, and group B is the number of people who underestimated the number of dots in the image. Or with the question about art, you might separate people into different taste categories. You say like, oh, you were the people who preferred the art by this artist and group B is the people who preferred the art by this other artist. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can certainly break it down like that. But I think on the other end, you could also just not explain what the what the, the methodology is at all. Like you could just put people into groups and it's just the idea that there's something about data that originates in you that informed this choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's actually random, but you don't want people to think it's random. You want them right. to think that it's based on something. Yes. Now, there's no interaction between the resulting groups, no room for interpersonal bonds, you know, not enough to be like, hey, those the, the people who apparently guess differently from me about jelly beans in a jar, uh, they seem a little stuck up or they seem a little stingy. You know, there's no room for that at all. Or likewise, no room for you to say, well, they seem like decent people, even if they count dots differently or estimate dots differently than I do. In fact, group membership was anonymous, right? So you didn't mm-hmm. know who was in the, you couldn't like look around the room and be right. like, here are the group A people. Yeah, that, and that's important to stress too, because yeah, it's just really the, the beauty of this experiment and the attractiveness of it is that it does just strip everything else away. Everything that you could use and also could therefore muddy and complicate the findings. Okay, so people are assigned into these random groups. They think there is a reason for the assignment. They don't know who's in the groups. They just know they're in one of them. Right. So now it's time to to get busy here. Uh, A second task is assigned in which subjects had to assign reward tasks to anonymous individuals, either two from the in-group, two from the out-group, or one from each. These individuals would be marked by a code number, and your code number would never come up, so it wasn't completely self-serving. Right, and these would be what are known as allocation tasks, tasks that are used in a number of different experiments to try to see what people value or reward. And generally, these are just experiments where subjects play some kind of game that involves distributing rewards, often monetary rewards, like a number of dollars or, uh, or tokens of some kind that can be exchanged for something to these anonymous players belonging to the in-group or the out-group or both. Yeah. And you might think that this would all favor even-handed distribution since there's just so little to go on aside from group affiliation in divvying it up. And I've read that in some cases, many subjects did try to distribute things kind of fairly, like uh, mm-hmm. one of the, the later reviews of Minimal Group Paradigm I was looking at by Sabine Otten from 2016 Uh, said that basically, quote, fairness concerns strongly guided intergroup allocations, but that didn't always hold true. There were there Mm -hmm. were a a number of exceptions. Yeah, ultimately, subjects consistently engaged in constant in-group bias. Uh, So the the groups were, again, entirely made up by chance. There There was no contact. Uh, here, but it was enough to generate a sense of group belonging. It created an us and it also created a them, 
which you then see borne out in the, the uh, study results. So that's the big take-home from the minimal group paradigm. Even without factors such as religion, race, nationality, socioeconomic class, even without things like what do other people, what do people in the outside group look like or act like? When, you know, what do I have in common with the people around me? It's even stripping all of that away. Humans rather swiftly form factions and discriminate against others. So to offer a little bit more detail from uh that later piece I mentioned. Uh, th- this was a paper called The Minimal Group Paradigm and Its Maximal Impact in Research on Social Categorization. This was published in Current Opinion in Psychology in 2016 by Sabine Otten. One thing Otten mentions is that when Tashfell and colleagues first came up with the minimal group paradigm, their original intention was uh, apparently to investigate whether people would display in-group favoritism, even in situations where there was no actual conflict for resources between the two groups. So their original question was a little bit different. But as a preliminary avenue of research to that project, this to address this other question, first they wanted to just find out what were the minimum criteria that could be leveraged mm-hmm. to cause people to show in-group favoritism. So this was originally supposed to be just like trying to establish what they would need to do in this other test. Otten writes, quote, they plan to start with a most minimal setup and to successively add elements to the design until intergroup discrimination would emerge. Um, So they started with these novel social categorizations based on things that they expected to have no power of social cohesion at all, like tendencies in, you know, the the numerical estimation game, the dots game, Mm -hmm. or or preferences for the types of paintings. Uh, And again, these were only pretenses. The people were actually assigned to groups randomly in most or all cases. And instead, what they found was that these fake made-up bases for social categorization were good enough to kickstart in-group favoritism. So they were trying to find the minimum criteria, and it turns out they just didn't really have to look very hard. There, there's barely a minimum at all. Yeah, and and that again, I think, is the thing that so that that floored everybody, and I th- and still floors people when they hear about it uh, for the first time or are reminded of. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was boarded! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. 
Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Otten recognizes three experimental features for recognizing what uh, authors in this experimental domain call a mere categorization effect. That's what's going on in the minimal group paradigm. It's like people are behaving in ways that indicate group favoritism, but only based on merely being categorized in a group and like nothing happening in the real world. The three features, uh, as Otten lists them, are, number one, categorization is novel and arbitrary, no history of experiences with in-group and or out-group. So it's got to be all new in the experiment. Number two, Mm -hmm. categorization is anonymous, no face-to-face interaction between group members, because you can obviously see how that would introduce complications. And uh, C, no utilitarian self-interests can be directly served by intergroup evaluations or allocations. So you don't want to complicate your study by by having people have the ability to pay money out to themselves because that, that would obviously add in new variables. Right, right. That would be the self-interest kicking in for sure. But a really interesting thing emerges with the allocation tasks uh, that is along the lines of self-interest. Instead of individual self-interest, it is in-group interest. So Otten says, as, as we've discussed, there, there were fairness concerns that did guide some intergroup allocations, but also there was evidence of in-group favoritism. Even when the group had just been formed, it meant essentially nothing and the members were anonymous. And here's a really interesting thing. In some cases, quote, the tendency to positively differentiate the in-group from the out-group was stronger than the tendency to maximize the in-group's profit. Hmm. So the example Otten gives here would be uh, instead of giving $12 to the in-group and $11 to the out-group, some subjects would select a strategy that gave $11 to the in-group and $9 to the out-group. <laughs> so everybody gets less, but the difference between the rewards of the two groups is greater. And if you were on the top of that difference, even if you got less, some people preferred that. Oh, wow. 
And this thing about sacrificing the overall objective gains of the in-group for a greater distinction in gains between the in-group and out-group made me think about uh, a thing I read in the context of a different paper exploring a different theory, Uh, but it was one by the uh, Harvard psychologist Jim Sidanius and uh, co-authors called uh, Vladimir's Choice and the Distribution of Social Resources, a Group Dominance Perspective. This was exploring a different theory called uh, social dominance theory, but it starts off with this anecdote that uh, apparently comes from a uh, an Eastern European fable. Uh, the authors uh, relate it as following. One day God came down to Vladimir, a poor peasant, and said, Vladimir, I will grant you one wish. Anything you want will be yours. However, God added, there is one condition. Anything I give to you will be granted to your neighbor, Ivan, twice over. Vladimir immediately answered, saying, okay, take out one of my eyes. Oh, that's grim. That's very grim. Now, the stakes in these minimal group paradigm experiments are certainly not that high, but I think we can all think of examples where, you know, sometimes you just see a case where what appears to be spite or maybe something else like that uh, overrides a person's own objective self-interest. Like, they would rather have... A, a higher degree of advantage over a known neighbor or adversary than a greater objective advantage overall. It'd be like if you, uh, if you sort of had it in for your, for your buddy and it was your turn to pick the, the, uh, the type of pizza you get and you'd make sure you got a flavor that you weren't crazy about, but you knew that your, your friend hated yeah. Like you're, you're, you're willing to, to, to choke it down just because more, more refreshing to you, more delicious to you is, uh, is the fact that they are going to um, dislike it more than you do, which again is illogical. It shouldn't be a thing that someone would do, but I think we can all easily imagine a scenario where someone's pettiness and spite would lead to such an occurrence. And maybe this one, like that's a version of it that maybe is a little more real world accurate as opposed to the blinding. The gulf between your okayness and your friend's misery is more valuable to you than the extra pleasure you would get from getting a topping you really liked. Right. And for some reason, this like this whole scenario makes more sense concerning friends than it does like enemies of any sort. I don't know. Uh, I don't, it, it, it perhaps uh, suggests a lot about, uh, about uh, the way relationships work. Now, there's some caveats to this that I want to get into in a second, because uh, to come back to that uh, paper by Otten, uh, one thing I was interested in was criticisms of uh, the minimal group paradigm. It does seem that uh, the, the MGP findings have been widely replicated with a lot of superficial variations. So it does look to me like the finding is robust. But while the finding itself is sound, you could argue that people might be drawing the wrong conclusions from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there are a number of uh, criticisms along those lines. One thing that uh, comes up in Otten's paper here is, is the minimal group paradigm really revealing something about how people would behave in the real world? Or does the experiment, quote, merely create a situation in which social category information receives unrealistic attention. I was like, oh, I think that's interesting because, okay, you're in a contrived laboratory scenario. Your membership in one group or the other is highlighted to you. You People are telling you about it. 
and the situation is stripped of a lot of other contextual information that would exist in the real world that would normally inform your behavior. Maybe people are placing undue weight on group membership, even though it's arbitrary, because it's really like the only variable they're being aware of in this situation. On the other hand, while that criticism makes a lot of sense to me, I think these experiments are just as valuable if you think about them with that caveat in mind. Like, they show a certain irrational way that some people behave, showing in-group preference for utterly arbitrary groups when group membership is made salient, when it is brought to your attention and, and people are talking about it, which is something that does happen in the real world all the time, actually. Like, there is some category distinction between people that was maybe not previously much noted, and for some reason, suddenly it is made salient. People start paying attention to this difference and talking about it. It seems to me that in reality, this is enough to trigger minimal group paradigm effects. Mm. This is only partially related, but it reminds me of that thing when an arbitrary factual question that previously had no political valence suddenly becomes politicized for some yes. reason. Yeah. Maybe by like a prominent politician taking a stance one way or another on this question. And now suddenly like what you think about this this question that previously involved no political values now is a major part of your identity and people will factionalize on the basis of it yeah and sometimes it it takes the form of just sort of of, of a you know fear-mongering about something that normally had no real kind of like fear weight to it like i instantly think of various things going on during say the satanic panic mm. where uh, you know, it's, it's suddenly there's, you know, there's some sort of a, an outrage over a, a particular piece of music that is interpreted uh, by somebody as having some sort of subliminal demonic message inside it, uh, even if there's little or no proof that that is even possibly the case, or certainly the intent of the artist, it ends up picking up steam all its own. And then where do you fall on this divide? Totally. Now, to be fair, things like that are, are not purely minimal group paradigm, because once you're talking about like cultural artifacts and preferences, you do start bringing in like, well, maybe that already touches certain things about, you know, cultural identity, which people would have opinions about and would have some in-group, out-group associations and so forth. But it's sort of halfway there. I wonder if there might be a comparison to draw here to the, there were two things that in recent years, there was the whole like, what color is this dress, right? Yes. And people were yeah. were split over that. I don't know. I mean, I, not to the point where I guess you really saw um, outgroup discrimination, but it was interesting to see how quickly people became like they were quick to 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 state what their interpretation of it was and become a part of that group that saw it a certain way. I do not remember what I thought of this dress or even who wore it, though. I just remember uh, being amused that it was a thing at all. I think I remember when I first saw it, it looked blue and black to me. So hate me if you want. <laughs> as important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. 
She's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But anyway, coming back to this issue, so it, it may be a good criticism that this has some limitation in how it applies to the real world once you bring in all the context of culture and all that. Um, but I, I do think it still probably highlights something very interesting, which is that group uh, sort of in-group favoritism can emerge with minimal stimulation just by like drawing a lot of attention to the presence and division differentiation of the groups. Mm. Another interesting limitation that Otten mentions, subsequent research has shown that in-group favoritism with uh, the minimal group paradigm is, quote, mostly restricted to allocations of positive resources and evaluations regarding positive traits. So when you're talking about things like assigning actual punishments or negative personal assessments, it seems that the mere categorization uh, effect no longer reliably produces results, which should be a good result, right? Yeah, yeah. Knowing that that eye gouging actually wouldn't play out all that well in this scenario. Right. So maybe experiments show the minimal group stuff is enough to make you treat your your in-group better and, and maybe even in some cases 
prefer them to get a, a better leg up over the other group as opposed to more payout overall. Um, but it doesn't extend to actually wanting to hurt or punish the outgroup. Yes, though not to imply, though, that um, just not wanting or not thinking about actively hurting the group doesn't mean that in the like the real world implications of of the minimal group paradigm that that plenty of hurt might be inflicted, uh, you know, especially if you're dealing like, you know, any kind of outgroup um, discrimination could, of course, have terrible effects uh, in the real world. But in those situations, you'd be going beyond the conditions of the minimal group paradigm and sort of bringing right. in the real world. Yeah. But anyway, I thought this was an interesting dynamic. So people might be more willing to allocate monetary payments to their own group, even if that group is novel or arbitrary. Uh, uh, but studies don't reliably show people to be willing to dole out punishments or disparagements against a novel arbitrary outgroup. Why might this be? Uh, one uh, interpretation given in this paper is it's possible that the the in-group favoritism in minimal group paradigm experiments shows up because uh, people have positive associations with themselves. And, hey, I'm part of the in-group, uh, so I, I'm good and deserving, and I'm part of Group A, and therefore Group A is good and deserving. And there might not really be an equivalent uh mechanism of comparison with the outgroup. So the same logic doesn't lead someone to conclude that group B is bad and undeserving. Uh, so you might not actually go so far as to select punishments and disparagements for them. Yet, this would raise interesting questions. It would bring me back to uh, that thing about why people so often in these experiments will sacrifice overall rewards of the in-group to get a bigger leg up on the out-group. Because, again, remember, like, you know, a lot of these findings are if I'm in group A but not personally receiving any rewards, I might choose a plan where group A gets 10 and group B gets 7 instead of a plan where group A gets 12 and group B gets 11. If this is not to be interpreted as an attempt to punish Group B, what does it mean? Uh, maybe it means that some people sometimes interpret it as a greater personal reward to get significantly more than your neighbor than it would be to get a greater objective reward overall. Like uh, some people would just rather come in second place and have Jeff come in sixth place rather than come in first place myself and have Jeff come in second. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of crunch that and like try and apply it to some sort of, uh, you know, um, hunter-gatherer scenario <laughs> and try and figure out how that makes sense even, even you know, like in, a, in those uh, situations. But yeah, I don't know. That is a weird little wrinkle in human nature. Yeah, um, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I, I see this discussed and I think of it in terms of it's kind of like the the idea here is that uh, MGP is kind of like a, a bedrock um, scenario, you know, and that, uh, mm -hmm. again, when you bring into the real world, everything else is going to be built on top of that bedrock. Or you could think of it in terms of like just sort of the initial uh, like laying out with stakes of what will become a cathedral. Um, and mm -hmm. and so you, you're not necessarily going to get the full picture of the cathedral looking at at the basic shape that you've marked out in the dirt, um, but you may be able to figure out some things, some of like the the, the sweeping ideas that be that will be present in the final design. But then again, you have no idea um, like all, what all the, the different cultural structures on top of it are ultimately going to produce. But it's still an interesting exercise to sort of strip things down to this level. Now I want to come back to to Brown for just one last thing here. 
because um, in, in uh, that paper, Brown stresses the historical context of MGP and says that it's also to consider, uh, especially uh, as it regards two major points. So first of all, he says that during the mid to late 60s, there was a so-called crisis in social psychology in which North American scholars in particular were questioning whether European studies involving a great deal of laboratory experimentation could actually apply to real-world social issues of the time. So this led to a lot of soul-searching and changes in Western psychology in general. And ironically, there were a lot of questions about, quote-unquote, experiments in a vacuum. Now, this is, it's ironic because, I mean, as we've been discussing, uh, the minimal group paradigm is very much an experiment in a vacuum. Like, a lot of effort goes into sucking all of the, the real-world complexity, sucking all the air out of the chamber of this experiment. Um, but it also could be seen, especially in the time period, as kind of like a, a stripping down to, to a new bedrock, to a new uh, level upon which to try and understand, like sort of like sweeping out, removing all those other experiments that were potentially complicating things. Mm-hmm. And Brown also stresses that prior to minimal group paradigm, the main ideas for why you had social prejudices in the real world were tied to personality dynamics, often um, connected to things in your upbringing, uh, built-up frustration, and negative interdependence among groups. And um, all of these ideas uh, as sort of sweeping definitions were challenged by experimental data. Mm-hmm. Instead, the, uh, the, the minimal group paradigm creates this, again, super stripped down, uh, simple experiment uh, that does seem to reveal a lot about some of like, the basic mechanics of how we think about our group and outside groups. Uh, coming back to, to memes and so forth, uh, it also reminds me of, of a common thing you, I think, still see, and that is people saying, well, there are two types of people in the world. There are the people that do or believe X and those who do or believe Y. And um, I guess the thing that often makes them funny is that it will, um, or potentially makes them funny, is that they'll hit on a division you did not realize was a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But then suddenly you're just presented with this spark of an idea that this is truly a defining choice to make. And, uh, you know, even though it's generally played for laughs, um, you know, you can kind of feel it uh, sort of, uh, uh, you can feel the divide sort of moving and you're sort of forced to step to one side or the other, uh, even if you don't actually engage with said meme or said conversation. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about those memes is they tend to, uh, it's kind of, I feel like we should give an example. What do they say? There are two types of people, those who peel back the Slim Jim wrapper as they eat it or those who take the Slim Jim out in one go and then eat it with their, fin- <laughs> hold it with their fingers you know, do you get your fingers greasy or not? Those memes are funny because they ask people to read a lot into a behavior that on its face we would assume does not tell you much about a person. Mm-hmm. And exactly the humor is in trying to, like, extrapolate everything you could possibly want to know about a person from from that one thing. Though that that is often kind of what we do. Like, you can imagine sitting in these, uh, these early experiments uh, with Tashfell and saying like, you know, okay, what are the people who counted the dots? You know, the people who counted the dots differently, what does that say about their personality? And <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to like work that up into something meaningful about reality. Yeah, I mean, we as humans, we tend to look for the patterns in things. So even when there's a random um, splitting, like if, if there's a, if, if it's supposedly based on how we counted the jelly beans in a jar, how we saw the dots and in some sort of an array, we're going to think about all the ways that that could potentially define who or what we are. You would say that because you're a dot undercounter. 
Yeah, uh, probably. Yeah, I mean, I, it does make you think like, oh, it, does that mean I'm a I'm a pessimist? Uh, <laughs> does that mean I'm just not that into sugar? What does it mean? Uh, we can't we can't help but try and figure that out and come up with all sorts of ridiculous theories as to what it says. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out right there. But hopefully we gave you just a, a good taste of the minimal group paradigm, like where, where it came from, what it what it seems to, to mean, what it seems to um, uh, tell us about human nature. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have some more uh, great um, you know, fictional examples or real-world examples of, of some of the, uh, some of what's going on here, uh, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we read listener mail every Monday in the, stu- in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed in our Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail episodes. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. Tuesdays and Thursdays are our core episodes. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just watch a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.